The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So, I think it's fair to say that we live in uncertain times. You think that's fair to say? I think that's pretty fair to say. We live in uncertain times. We live in a time of tragedy and upheaval. I mean, just think about, I mean, you don't have to think very hard. Just some of the stories of the past few days, the past few weeks. I just learned that uh, right before the service that one of our own, she has family in Puerto Rico and they're running out of food. And so we're going to try to marshal our efforts to try to send some food down there. I mean, that's close to home, right? Think about last Sunday night, the tragic events in Las Vegas, much less just the everyday kind of news that just rolls through that's full of uncertainty, isn't it? We live in tragic and uncertain times, and it can seem like sometimes like the very ground beneath our feet is unsteady and shifting, can it? Like sometimes it's big picture stuff like Las Vegas and Puerto Rico and Houston and Florida, like all the, all the stories. But sometimes that's close to home, right? <laughs> Tragedy, news, a phone call, uh, something that happened with your own family members and friends that caused you to feel like the ground beneath your feet is unsteady and unshakable, like you can't find a good, fit, a good footing there. I think it's also fair to say that not only are the times that we live in now uncertain and tragic, but really that's the story of all times. We just simply exchange one bit of uncertainty and tragedy for another bit of uncertainty and tragedy. It's one of the great lessons of history. But here's something that's interesting that we see in this passage in Acts chapter 12. And we see it throughout the history of Christianity from the moment Jesus rose again till today, we see this truth that the history of Christianity is like a flower that blooms in a frost. That when things are darkest and most uncertain and most tragic around believers, it's when the glory of God is most clearly able to be shown. It's when everybody thinks that everything is okay and they don't think they have any need for God that things just, day just passes into day. But it's in the midst of the frost, it's in the midst of the tragedy, it's in the midst of the tears, it's in the midst of the uncertainty that Jesus is shown to be the unshakable one. And we as believers are shown to be the one whose feet are on, not who, we're not unshakable, we are absolutely shakable. In the midst of tragedy, we have tears, we have fears, we have concerns, but in the midst of those tears and fears and concerns, we're the ones who know not that any strength is in ourselves, but that we have been placed upon strength. We didn't even put ourselves on the rock that isn't shakable, but we find ourselves placed upon a rock that is unshakable. Here's the big idea that we're going to see this morning in this passage. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. God is working miraculously and mysteriously on our behalf 
for his glory alone. I know that's a long sentence, but I'm not good at shortening things. God is working miraculously and mysteriously on our behalf for his glory alone. And we're going to see that in the passage in four ways. We're going to break that one big idea into four little parts. Number one, God is working. Number two, God is working miraculously on our behalf. Number three, God is working mysteriously on our behalf. And number four, God is working for his glory alone. God is working. God is working miraculously. God is working mysteriously. And God is working for his glory alone. So the Acts chapter 12 starts off about that time. Herod the king laid violent hands on some. So that's not even just James, but on some who belonged to the church. So for some reason, Herod decided that he was going to uh, lay the whip down on the Christians. And he laid violent hands. That means, that doesn't just mean he threw them into prison. That means they were being put to death at his order and at his commands. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Herod is the king. He represents the Roman Empire. So he is the king over this region. He is the underking under the Roman Empire, which is the most powerful force on the face of the planet. Rome ruled with an iron fist. Rome was in charge, and it exercised its authority from Rome through Herod, the local king, and he had lots of leeway to decide how he was going to lead the area that he was over as long as there were certain parameters that he didn't go out that Rome laid down. He had incredible power at his hand. He had the full power of the Roman Empire in the area that the Jews, that the, that the Christians and the Jews were in in Judea. And he decides in his own whim, for whatever reason, that he's going to lay violent hands. He's going to crack down on the Christians. And he orders, he gathers some and orders them to be put to death. And among those are James, the brother of John, one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the 12 original disciples of Jesus. In fact, not only one of the 12, but one of the closest three to Jesus. The closest three to Jesus were Peter, James, and his brother, John. So James, one of the closest three to Jesus, are one of the ones who are captured, and he is put to death by the sword. Can you imagine what kind of fear that would put into your heart as a Christian? If you're not sure at any given point as you gather to worship in the caves or the homes that they were gathering to worship in, as you were sitting at home with your family and you know that your neighbors know that you're a Christian, that if, that if he decides that you're one of the ones that he's going to capture, that at any given point, you and or your family could be killed. There would be such incredible fear and uncertainty going on. They had, they had no power in the face of Herod and Rome. The Christians were not a powerful, not a connected bunch of people. They were peasants. They were slaves at this point, mostly vast majority of them were very poor. They didn't even have, they had no connections. And if they had, they wouldn't have had enough connections to overrule Herod's iron-fisted commands. Herod is powerful, and Rome is what, is what you call a, the sovereign authority over the land that they live in. To be sovereign means to that you rule and reign over the area with nobody, nobody that you can go above your head to. You are it. What you say goes. If you say everybody's favorite color is pink, everybody's favorite color is pink by command. 
If you decide everybody's favorite color is blue and you want every house painted uh, Carolina blue, that's what happens. If you decide everybody is a Gamecock fan, then poor nation, everybody's going to be a Gamecock fan. I'm a Clemson fan, I just want to throw that in. What you say, what you command goes without anybody being able to appeal to a higher power. There's no higher power to appeal to. The Christians were weak and powerless in the face of Herod and Rome. And James is killed. One of Jesus' own, one of the closest disciples to him is killed. And now Peter is imprisoned. One of the great leaders of the church, one of Jesus' own disciples, one of the closest three, two now of the three are looking like they're going to be killed at the command of Herod. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This is during the days of unleavened bread. This is a feast that was following uh, the Passover. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So the way this worked is he assigned Peter. He, was, he did not, well, Peter had been gotten out of tight spots before. He had been in prison two times now before this, and he had been released both times. And he has decided that is not going to happen here, and he's not going to be sprung like whatever happened to the Jesus guy that he professes to be the Lord. So he puts four squads of soldiers. A squad was four soldiers. He put, he put 16 soldiers in charge of guarding Peter. There'd be four at a time. Two, you would normally be chained by one wrist to a to the prison guard, Peter is chained by both wrists to two prison, one on each side, and then there would be two sentries at the door guarding him, and they would be on either six or three-hour shifts to make sure that they're fresh the whole time. The situation looks hopeless. But look what it said. This should stand out to you in verse six. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was what? Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Peter is sleeping, and he's sleeping soundly. We know he's sleeping soundly because he's sleeping so soundly that when the angel shows up to wake him up, he wakes up. Have you ever, like, a couple weeks ago, I told you guys I'm going to have, like, a, an epic mind-bending, world-changing nap. You guys remember that? I was so tired. Uh, like, you ever woke up from that kind of sleep in the morning or from that nap, and you don't remember your name or where you are or what the date is? You don't know what you're supposed to be doing? Like you're, and then for like, like, that happened to me yesterday morning, and, and like I woke up, and it, like it, Megan's like, Landon's got to be in, at fo the football game in an hour, and I'm like, who's Landon? I don't understand. What's football? Who are, what is happening here? I don't, give me a couple minutes to remember like, what's going on. Peter is sleeping so soundly that when the angel wakes him up, he's not even sure if he's still sleeping. He's so groggy. He doesn't realize this is real until he's out in the street. That's how soundly Peter was sleeping. Now, here's the question. 
How, if Peter is expected, now, we don't have any reason to believe that Peter expected to be rescued. Number one, because he's sleeping. Number two, because Jesus had predicted that Peter's death would be a martyr's death. So Peter is sitting in prison, chained between two guards, two guards at the door. James has already been killed. Peter is probably fully expecting that he's going to be killed the next morning. And yet, what's he doing? He's sleeping, and he's sleeping soundly. Why would Peter be sleeping? You know how Peter was sleeping? Because he was, his life was based on the knowledge that no matter how much Herod and Rome thought that they were the sovereign authority over him and over the whole area that they lived in, that he served the greater sovereign who was over all, the capital S sovereign Lord the one who is over everything, one who is much greater than Herod, much greater than the Roman Empire. Peter was literally resting in the fact that his God, listen to that phrase, his God, not just some God somewhere, but his God was sovereign over everything. The sovereignty of God means a couple of things. It means, number one, it means his ownership of all things. Our God is sovereign, and that means he owns all things. It means that he was the author of all things. Everything that you see, everything you cannot touch, taste, smell, hear, experience, anything that he did not create and set in motion. He is the author of the universe. He is the author of your life. He is the authority over all. It all belongs to him. There is not one molecule. There is not one planet. There is not one star. There is not one fish in the sea. There is not one blade of grass. There is not one event that happens in your life. There is not one thought you have that is not outside his absolute and utter ownership. He owns it all. He created it all, and he has retained ownership from the very beginning. He's the author of life, He's the, and he is the authority over all life. And if you are a believer in Christ this morning, that's your God. If you are a son or a daughter of the Most High this morning, if you've been born again by the grace of God, that is your dad. And you are a child, a son or a daughter, an heir to the one who owns everything. Peter laid his head down at night fully expecting to die the next morning in utter and complete peace because he knew that the Jesus man that he walked with and followed, that he saw crucified on the cross, that he saw raised again, and that he saw go back into glory at the right hand of the Father was the one who was the author and owner of it all. So therefore, what does it matter if they swing the sword at my neck? He's got it. The fact that he is sovereign means that he owns it all. It also means that he has an interest in all things or he cares about what happens and he is intimately involved in what happens in life. God isn't sovereign. In fact, like he he sets the world in motion and spins it out into space and then step back and said, let's see what they do with that. I'm I'm 
I own it, but let's see what they do over there with that. Good luck, guys. The picture of the God of the Bible is the God who is intimately and actively involved in the everyday things of life. There is nothing that happens in your life that he is not intimately involved in, that he doesn't care about. Not just that he's involved in, but he cares about what is happening to you and around you. Not one thing. He sets the world in motion, but that he is intimately involved in the day-to-day and the minute things that happen. He's not so caught up with like big things like presidential elections and hurricanes and wars that he is, doesn't care about your and my little things. The, the omniscience and omnipresence of God, that means this all-knowing and that fact that he is everywhere at one time, means that he knows everything and he is everywhere all at one time without exerting any effort to do so. At this very moment, he is intimately with you and among you. He knows what is going on in your life, what is about to happen to your life, the phone call that you got that shattered your life, the news that came to you that you didn't see coming. That didn't shock him. He knew that was coming and he was involved with you. And at the same moment as that, he is at the depths of the ocean aware of every single movement of every single fish and where they are going and where they are coming from and every single wave of every single bit of seaweed on the bottom of the ocean. Is there seaweed on the bottom of the ocean? I don't know. Every single grain of sand, every single, every single nuclear explosion in the heart of the sun, he is aware of it and he is there. He is holding it together at the same time. He's aware of what's going on in your heart, in your mind, and in your life without exerting any effort to do so. He is interested in all things. He cares about what has happened, and he is intimately involved. He owns it. He is interested, and then he is in control of all things. What that should give you uh, encouragement to, the same encouragement that he gave Peter to lay his head down between those two soldiers, fully expecting death, because his God was the owner of all things. He was interested in what was going on, and he had the power to affect his will. <laughs> there is no, there is nothing. I was thinking about this this week at work. I own a small business, and uh, there's six employees, including me, and day to day and week to week, I worry about things. I like wonder what, what's the market going to do? What's, where's the stock market going? Where's the real estate market going? What's happening? Uh, do I need to hire somebody? What if I, what if I hire too many people? What's going to happen? I, I was thinking about those things, and it, it felt at the moment like insurmountable to figure out what I needed to do. You ever had that feeling come over you like you're not sure like where the money for your light bill is going to come from, or you know the paychecks have ended, and there's not enough money to make it to the next month. It, you got that news from the doctor and the, your health looks incredibly terrible. Like You get news about your family member or friend that throws you for a loop and you think you get that feeling of like, like panic. 
There is nothing that is outside his ability and his power. And if you're a child of God, there's a phrase in the Bible I heard a lot as a kid and it didn't make much sense to me. It says that our God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. It didn't really mean much to me. I grew up in the country, but I'm like, I don't really have much use for cows and a thousand hills doesn't seem like, you know, I don't know that much. But it's a phrase that means he owns everything everywhere. And if he wants something to happen with you and for you, he can put all his chips on the table and make sure it happens. And nothing, there's nobody that can arm wrestle God and beat him. So Peter laid down to rest and he slept soundly. Here Isaiah 46, 9b through 11. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring in from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. You know what gave Peter that kind of unshakable rest? The fact that Jesus came. That proves that God is involved, he is in control, and he will make it right. And if you're a Christian, then our view of the sovereignty of God, it should comfort us. If you're a Christian, our view of the sovereignty of God should give us secret strength in the face of adversity. And if you're a child of God, then the sovereignty of God should set us apart because we're not grasping for strength and power. Look at how Peter rests. That sets him apart from the way other people would be in prison waiting for their immediate and impending death because he knew that God was in control and that set him apart from the way everyone else responded. So therefore, Peter sleeps and the church prays. God is working miraculously and mysteriously on our behalf for his glory alone. God is working, and God will work miraculously on our behalf. Now, this is interesting to me that when it says that Peter is sleeping, he doesn't seem to be expecting to get out. Verse 7, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. It's <laughs> a weird way to wake up with an angel kicking you in the side saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you. You can tell like Peter is really groggy. He doesn't like, get dressed, wrap your cloak around you, follow me. And he went out and he followed him. And he didn't know what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought it was seeing a vision. Now, when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Hear this this morning. If you are a Christian, then you are a child of God. And if you are a child of God, then the unmerited, gracious favor of God rests upon you. He is no longer against you. He is for you. 
and his miraculous power is lined up to make sure that whatever you need to, whatever he wants to happen in your life will happen and nothing can thwart that. And if you find yourself in a prison between two smelling guards and there's a gate that is closed and another gate and there are guards between those two gates, he will make sure that you get out of that prison if he has called you to get out of that prison, there is nothing that can take you out of his hand or out of his power. His miraculous power is there to move in ways that you and I cannot even imagine and would not expect. Peter, laying in prison, and the church, even at this home of John Mark's mother, praying, neither one seemed to expect Peter to be released, and yet God moves in his miraculous power to release him. And he will move in his miraculous power in your life to accomplish his purposes. Whatever it is that he has called you to do, he will empower you to do it with a power that is above and beyond you. Whatever circumstances lie in your way, if he has called you to go over it or through it or under it, he will either move the mountain or he will take you over the mountain, but he will get you there by his power. It cannot be thwarted. God has moved miraculously in the past, and he still moves miraculously today. I could stop this meeting right now, and we could go for two, three four hours by going around this room and having different ones of us just give the shortest story we can possibly give of ways that he showed up miraculously that no other way could explain except that he showed up. And so when you're a Christian and you're going about your daily life in the areas that he's called you to do, has he called you to school? Approach school with the idea that he will miraculously move in power to enable me to do this. If he's called you into a marriage, he's miraculously and will miraculously endue you with power to make it through it, even when times are tough. Has he called you to, to mission? Has he called you to parent? Has he called you to whatever? He will miraculously empower you and enable you to do it, and nothing can stop it if he's called you to do it. He is all-knowing and he is all-powerful and all of that all-knowing and all of that all-powerfulness is on our behalf as believers. He can and he will work powerfully and he can and will work miraculously on your behalf. Do you believe that? Jesus said, all you need is the faith the size of a mustard seed. And you can say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, and it'll be done for you. Most days, I don't feel like I have faith. Like, I feel like maybe I have that much faith. But it encourages me to see the story. You know what faith the size of a mustard seed looks like? It looks like Peter laying down and resting between those guards whenever he had nothing else to do. He just rested in God. And it looked like the church gathering in John Mark's mother's home to pray fervently. That word earnestly or fervently is the same word that it talks about when Jesus was in the garden praying to the Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. They're praying fervently and they're praying earnestly, which by the way is what you do when you feel like you are powerless and weakless and weak. As long as you and I feel like we have some power or some ability, we will usually 
use, utilize all our power and all our ability and our, all our connections to make whatever we think needs to happen, happen. But it's when we are powerless, we don't feel like we have any connections or any ability, that's when we'll pray earnestly and seek God. And he will do things as we pray earnestly and we seek him that we aren't even bold enough to pray at that moment because he is a miraculous, powerful God and he is working, if you're a believer, on your behalf. Peter and the church didn't seem to have much more faith than that mustard seed faith. Yet they did pray fervently and earnestly. God is working miraculously and mysteriously on our behalf for his glory alone. Not only does God work miraculously, but God works mysteriously. Now, just stick with me on this. If God is sovereign and he's miraculous, then that leaves us with a mystery here, right? Maybe you've already caught it. What about James? Peter's imprisoned. The church prays. We don't know, but I would think the church probably prayed when James was in prison as well. Maybe I might have prayed harder, more earnestly and more fervently when Peter is in prison because James has already been killed. They probably pray. James was no more deserving death than Peter was. In fact, if you and I were writing up their resume, Peter's resume is much worse than James. Peter's the one, if you remember, who... Like, all the disciples kind of left Jesus when the chips were down. But Peter's the one who went like, hey, I'll see that leaving Jesus, and I'll deny him, and I'll see that denial, and I'll deny him again, and I'll see that denial, and I'll deny him three times to, like, a servant girl. When the chips were down, he didn't just disappear. He pretended he didn't even know who he was. I can relate to that. Think if you were one of the James family members, or friends. What would you be thinking after you hear this story? Peter comes and he tells the church, like, hey, God saved me. They're, they're amazed. He goes into hiding. And then that word gets back to you. Maybe James had a wife. Maybe he had kids. I don't know. Brother, sister. Oh, no, he had a brother, John. What was, what was John thinking at this point? What? God, I'm glad you helped Peter. But why not John? Why not, why not James? Why, why him and not him? If you're going to help, I mean, just be honest, in a moment of prayer, God, if, 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 if you're going to help somebody, then somebody who has it deserving, somebody deserves it more than Peter, it would be James. He's been more faithful. But was God working, was God not sovereign when James had his head separated from his body? He was still sovereign. Was he still miraculously powerful when James' head was removed from his body? He's absolutely miraculously powerful. So what's going on? One of the things that's going on is God, is God works in mysterious ways. 
It's mysterious. It's not just a throwaway like line, God works in mysterious ways, but it's mysterious because we don't quite understand it. We can't understand it. Jonathan Shanks likes to say, I find it's like made its way into my vocabulary all the time now, but he likes to say, hey, that's above my pay grade. And the things that God does or that God allows that we don't understand, it's really above our pay grade. But here's what happens is that if you have ever felt that way, that you see God where he doesn't seem to be moving, like, like there are things that those of us in here have prayed for earnestly, earnestly, God. Heal this person. Move in this situation. Break this person from addiction. We prayed fervently and earnestly, yet it seems that either God isn't moving or didn't move, or it seems like God moved in a way that I don't understand and I don't agree with. And it's in those moments that we're faced with a temptation. A temptation to believe, number one, that he doesn't care. Have you ever thought that? I've thought that. God, you don't seem to be moving or you're moving in a way that I don't agree with or I don't understand, so that must mean that you don't care. And that's the same lie that came to the garden to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? The lie from Satan at that point was that God doesn't really have your best interest at heart. He really doesn't care about you. He's trying to hold something back from you. And that brings in distrust between you and God. We're tempted to believe that he doesn't care. We're tempted to believe that he's unfair. Have you ever thought that before? <laughs> I've thought that before. God, you're not fair. Why do you give all this stuff, all this opportunity, all this possessions, all this whatever to this person? And what about me? Or why have you given me all this? And what about that person over here who doesn't? I don't understand. He doesn't seem to be fair. Or we're tempted to believe that he isn't powerful enough. But you know what the problem with all three of those temptations are? That all three of those temptations are knocks on the nature and character of God. It's, it's a temptation for you to believe that God is not really who he says he is. When we know, or should know, that God cannot lie, and he is exactly who he says he is. He will be, whether I understand it or not, whether I get it or not, he is and he will be. And if you're a believer, I know this is true, Romans 8, 31 and 32. This is one of those coffee mug verses, right? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And this is how you can know that. This is how you can walk through life when you, things are happening that you don't understand and you, you're tempted to question the nature and character of God. How can you be sure that he, is, that he cares, that he's fair, that he is powerful enough? Why? Because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also not freely give us all things? If you were a child of God, you can know that even whenever he isn't moving in the way that you, he's not moving, it doesn't seem that he's moving at all or he's not moving in the way that you understand or agree with, that because he gave us Jesus, he shows us that he cares. 
and he's powerful. And we don't really want him to be fair, do we? Because if he was fair, we would all give what we would deserve, and that would be terrible. Here's a question. Why would we not trust him? What has God done in his, the history of his life that would cause you or me to think that he's not good and he's not powerful and that he doesn't care? What does his history say that he is not those things? And moreover, what in your history or my history causes us to think that, that we would know better than he does? I don't have a stellar history at choosing the right direction all the time. Ask my wife. I don't have a stellar history of always caring about the things that I should care about and having good perspective. And that's the problem. We lack God's perspective. We lack God's understanding. And we have mixed motives and we have lesser goals than God. Because my goals are my, God, I think that it would be beneficial to me or make sense to me if you worked in this way. Therefore, you should work in that way. But that's a lesser goal than God has. God is working a great goal for all of creation, for all of humanity, and he's working it for a different end than something that pleases or makes you and me feel good. It's for his glory alone, which is the last point. God is working for his glory alone. Look at how this chapter ends. Verse 20, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, it's an awesome name, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country or Herod's country for food. So on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. The, the historian Josephus said that uh, he, when it says he put on his robe, he had put on robe that was, that was uh, woven as if, it, as if by silver. It might have been woven with silver itself. So as he stood or sat on the throne in the sun, his robes would have glistened in the sun in front of the people who are gathered below him. And the people, because they need food for their countries, the people were shouting the voice of God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. Why? Because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That's a bad way to go. Somebody in community group this week pointed out, hey, notice the order. It doesn't say he breathed his last and then was eaten by worms. It's the other way around. But look at verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod struck down because he tried to steal God's glory. And of the three big characters in this chapter, we see God was working for one big theme with them all. James and his death, Peter and his rescue, and Herod in his death, 
God was showing that he was sovereign over all, that he was in control, and he was working toward the end that he would be glorified. He was glorified in James going to his death, a martyr's death. He was glorified in Peter being rescued. Why James and not Peter? That's mysterious and we do not understand, but we know it was for his glory. And then here in Herod, in his death, look at how the chapter starts. The chapter starts with Herod in control, terrorizing the people, and James is killed. And the chapter ends with Herod being killed and the word of God continuing to spread with power and increasing and multiplying. It's obvious to see how God's at work in Peter, right? He's rescued. But that's not what caused Peter to rest. And that's not what even caused the church to pray. The church probably followed the pattern of the church in the, in the very beginning, whenever they were first, the first time they were threatened by the authorities in Acts chapter 4. It says they gathered together and they, they, they said, God, you see the threats that have come. Now glorify yourself through us. That's what they prayed. And that's what Peter rested in. And that's what James rested in as he was taken to the block to have his head separated from the rest of his body. And that's what you and I can rest in, that God will be glorified. We want to be about our own glory, don't we? We want God, really, this is the sinful, terrible thing about humanity, is not only do we want to be about our own glory, like I really, if, if I'm honest, I really want to be the center of my world, and I want everybody who's around me to let me be the center of their world as well. But not only that, but I want God to be about my glory, too. I want God to orbit around me and do what I want him to do so I can be happy and healthy and wealthy and wise. But God shows us through this whole chapter with an exclamation point at the end with Herod that he will not share his glory with another. And this morning, if you're here, and I say this with incredible in utter humility, if you are here and you're not a Christian, maybe you've been around church your whole life, but you've never been born again, then that fact, the fact that God will not share his glory with another is and should be threatening to you. But here's the good news, is that God has most glorified himself through sending his son to bear the penalty that you had coming to you, for you, and on your behalf, something that you could not do and would not have asked him to do if you could have. And he has lavished that grace upon you, and in that he is glorified in showing you grace when you had none coming to you. And for every one of us here who are believers today, that is the place that we are in. And what happens at that point when we are born again is God changes the innermost part of our heart. To, even though 
many layers of my soul, still, I still want to be the center at the very core of who I am. I echo the songs that we were singing this morning, saying, God, you are worthy alone, and you should be and will be glorified. For the child of God, the fact that God is glorifying himself, that he is working, that he is miraculous, that he is mysterious, and it's all for his glory, is our peace and is our joy. Let's join our lives in the work that God's doing to glorify himself in all things. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.